Welcome to the Humor and Mistakes Podcast with me, Mick Neal. Each week we have a guest on our show to discuss mistakes, mishaps, and missteps that they made throughout life. We hope to find wisdom and a few laughs along the way. This week we're here with real estate agent, motivational speaker who has spoke all over the world, a real estate broker since 1971. He's a friend of the show and he's the author of Dog Eat Dog and Vice Versa, Rossi. Well, hey, how are you? How you doing? That is a long intro. You've done a lot. I know. Uh, my mom wrote it. <laughs> uh, you know, you uh, people introduce me and I say, gee, I'd like to meet that guy. So, yeah. How have you accomplished so much? Uh, years. Just time? Just years, yeah. Time on this planet. It's amazing. A lot of people just uh, sit still. I seem to run hard all the time. You don't ever get tired, man? Well, yeah. I mean, you get tired of self and others, but you just keep going. There's, um, in July, I'll be 75. Okay. Uh, that doesn't bother me at all, because how old would you be if you didn't know? I think I'd be like 33, 34. Uh, yet I know other people my age, they'd be 80, 90, 100. You know, they, it, it, I have this belief that it's okay to get old. <laughs> Don't like the alternative. You can't stop it. <laughs> but it's not okay to act old. You watch people when they get old. I'm sure you've seen this, McNeil. They, they start stooping, and they start breathing shallow, and their shoulders go down. And then they start talking low, and, oh, I'm getting so old. And then they program their brain by saying, I can't remember anything. I forget everything. I used to be able to do that. Hate technology. It drives me nuts. I just want to slap them. I, I guess that's been your motto throughout life because you read some of your reviews on Amazon for your book, and it's just like Rossi's always been smiling no matter what. Well, yeah, I mean, uh, the world is full of miserable, heartbreaking problems, and you're all, we all get dealt the same, you know, our cards. So you cannot not have problems, but it's how you uh, allow them to affect you. Uh, there's no, no storm in the world that sunny skies don't appear after. I remember reading something that you were smiling on like a construction job or you were on like a job that everybody's just supposed to be frowning at. Shoveling coal. And you were just smiling. I worked for, boy, this will date you. It's still in operation out of Durango, Colorado, where they're having the horrible fires right now. I mean, I pray for them. But there's a narrow-gauge railroad, that means skinnier rails, that runs from Durango, Colorado to Silverton, Colorado, and the steam engines were made in the late 1800s, and it's coal-fired, and they still have this. It's a tourist train. It's beautiful. If you ever get to Durango, do it. It's known throughout the world, gorgeous scenery, runs up the Animas Valley, but I shoveled six and a half to 21 ton of coal a day on that train, and uh, you, you got to smile doing that. I mean, that you, was, you got to. Yeah, that was 1965, and I'm operating like they were in the late 1800s. Your mama wasn't <laughs> born. Thanks for sharing. <laughs> so yeah, I didn't get to run the tourist train. That was the the cream job. That was the six and a half ton. I did the freight, which went all the way from Farmington, New Mexico, through Durango, down through 
to Chama, New Mexico, and Alamosa, Colorado. And it was brutal. It was really brutal. Man, I got down to 185 pounds of romping, stomping romance, man. I was, it was a good time. And people were just like, yo, that guy's just always smiling no matter what. It's, you know, it's a choice. I was buying groceries yesterday in Harris Teeter, and uh, the gal says, you're sure happy today. And I said, yeah, it's a choice. She says, amen. How come everybody else doesn't believe that? You know, I don't know. How come? Just to give the people a little backstory, um, we were at a movie premiere, and uh, I got up and spoke, and just to say, like, hey, I'm going to be in the next movie that the director is shooting. Uh, I'm just here to see his work right now. And then afterwards, we just had a chat. And, uh, well, you, actually, you came up and talked to me. Well, you know why. McNeil, you, you've got a great attitude. You have a great aura, and you smile. And you stood up there and you said, you know, I don't really know what I'm doing here, but I'm excited about it. I'm going to be doing it. And, I'm, and, and you had this energy. And so, yeah, I went up and talked to you because uh, energy uh, begets energy. <laughs> and I was telling you, like, yeah, like I'm into motivational stuff. And you're like, I'm a motivational speaker. And Isn't that amazing? Yeah. I just yeah. happened to mention it. I don't know why. And I, I have to share a story with you about that. Um I used to dislike motivational speakers because I had this thought that they would get you all lathered up and then there would be no blade to shave, <laughs> you know. So, and usually motivational speakers or ministers or others do so to get you to break out your wallet, donate or buy or certainly buy the stuff at the back of the room. And as a speaker... It was always against my values to sell stuff at the back of the room. I thought, I'm at the front of the room. I'm going to give it all to you now. That's why you pay me to be here. Yeah, that probably cost me a lot of money because some of those speakers make millions of dollars a year selling you stuff. So when someone say, are you a motivational speaker? I'd go, no. But then my mentor is a speaker is a guy by the name of Michael Vance. He was the dean uh, of the College of Disney, um, architect. Uh, I think he's a ex-Lutheran minister. He's written 20 books. He is the creator of Out of the Box Thinking, Raise the Bar. He was the genius behind all of that. And I told him I didn't want to be a motivational speaker. And he says, well, did you ever hear a good speaker? Yeah. No, a really good speaker. Yeah. That wasn't motivational. Wow. And I went, oh. So I guess I'm a motivational speaker. I'm here <laughs> to pump you up. Well, and, and I appreciate that. And then, yeah, and we started talking, and then I told you about my show and what my goal was, how I wanted to mix comedy and, like, helping people at the same time, and I didn't know how I was going to do it. And then here we are. We're, I met up with you at your home, and we talked and chatted and just got to know each other. And, and you bought my book, God bless you. <laughs> I bought your book, and it cost you money. Well, <laughs> that's anybody who sells books through Amazon knows if you're not uh, a number one seller, you probably are not going to make a lot of money. <laughs> 
You were, yeah, you were like, it would have been cheaper for me to just give it because you told me you were going to give it to me, and I was like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna show them that I'm really interested in buy. You're like, you cost me money, but <laughs> yeah, yeah, but that's right. I love you anyway. It's all good. It's yeah. all good. Just to give the people, just just to let them know who you are. Like, if I was sitting beside you on a plane and we had like 12 hours, how would you like talk about yourself? How would you introduce yourself? You, you're gonna enjoy this. I, like many people who travel, I, good news, I'm a platinum for life on American Airlines. The bad news is I'm a platinum for life on American Airlines. Man, that's a lot of miles. You get wore out in the sky. It'll it'll kill you. You've gotten but, tired of flying? Oh, you get tired of it. Oh, First class? Uh, oh, I don't get to go first class all the time. Okay. That's, you have to pay for that, and I'm too cheap. I'm not going to, you know... I, why, why would you pay double the price of your ticket to get a cocktail and a linen napkin? <laughs> you know, so what? Who cares? Anyway, sitting in the back, I do poor man's first class. That's exit aisle. You always want to go for the exit aisle. Listen. That's most leg space. <laughs> Uh, smartest people, by the way, sit in the exit. I, I, I like to make eye contact with the exit people because I'm not good with that responsibility. It's too much pressure. If, some, <laughs> if something were to go down, I'm saving myself. But like I'd I'd be like I'd make sure I'm like yo you got me right like you're <laughs> I love if something that. if something goes down you're saving my life right. Well, I like I like to sit on the airplane and and not conversation with people. I instead I like to get them to start a conversation with me and you do that by mirroring people i know you and i talked about in nlp i'm a master neurolinguistics practitioner but if you mirror other people and they feel comfortable with you they will open a conversation and then you have a better conversation than you going hi how are you and all that kind of stuff is oh you they like you like this i'm um I'm on the last plane out of Chicago to Raleigh. I'm tired. I've been on the road all week. I'm cranky. I don't have my exit aisle seat. I'm on the bulkhead. That means you've got the wall right in front of your face. You can't even put your laptop down. I'm on the window seat. I'm on the two side. So there's an empty seat next to me. And across the aisle is the three side. And there are uh, three seats empty over there. And I hear coming through first class a 13-year-old chatty Kathy. She's going, I don't know I'm going to have Sprite or Pepsi-Cola. I know. Maybe I can get a ginger ale. Have you ever noticed that you never get a ginger ale unless you're sick? Then you get a ginger ale or if you're on the airplane. You get, do you think they have peanuts or, or or crackers? What do you think? And I'm going, I'm saying that prayer. I know. You right. probably oh, said Oh, you've got to say the prayer. like, Dear Lord, don't let her sit next to me. <laughs> like, and have you ever noticed when you do that, your prayer is answered immediately? <laughs> Bam. She's right in that seat. Across the aisle is your mom and her two brothers. And so I bury my face in a book. I don't want to even start any conversation. And the plane is late and taken off. And I finally my eyes come up, and she's staring right at me. And she goes, hi, are you flying on business or pleasure? And I went, business, putting my face back in the book again. And now I can feel her eyes on me. They're like searing on me. I look up and she says, so what kind of business are you in that causes you to fly? And I said, I'm a motivational speaker. Bam, eyes back in the book and the voice inside of me going, oh, no. That was the wrong thing to say. You opened the wrong door there. And now those eyes are going, my collar is smoking. 
I look up and she says, so you're not very motivated. Slammed to the floor by a 13-year-old chatty (laughs) Kathy. And she was right. I was letting flying and TSA and passengers with BO and bags the size of a Volkswagen trying to jam it in an overhead. I was letting that affect me. I was allowing the environment to dictate the way I feel, and I was getting negative. I talked to her the rest of the flight. I gave her a copy of my book. We exchanged notes afterwards. She was delightful. And it was then that I stopped being negative when I flew. Really? I talked to flight attendants. I talked to TSA. I talked to everybody because it's not the world that's on you. It's you that create the world around you. You might owe her a check, man. I do. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, I'm glad I didn't say her name for sure. I'd have to mail her a check in. Oh, yeah, that's no, cool. very valu- very valuable lesson. All right. Just so they have a backstory of of who you are. Where did you grow up? How like what made you who you are today? I was raised in Albuquerque, New Mexico, and I did things that nobody else wanted to do. Um, I wrangled snakes and sold them to the university. Uh, As a kid? Yeah. In, you you know, just 12, out there thir- catching rattlesnakes. 12, 13 years old, catching rattlesnakes, putting them in a pillowcase, sticking them in the seat of my motor When scooter. was this? Because oh. I thought back in the day, like, if you were a weird kid, they used to put you in, like, the special class. You were just out there ca- catching. Oh, yeah. Yeah, me and my buddies, we'd go out there and catch snakes. And, and we'd get, if they were, uh, we got a dollar if they were three foot or less. And we got um, three dollars if they were over. Uh, three foot, and if they were five foot, we got five dollars. So, man, we're always going for the big ones, and we didn't know what we were doing. We're st- I wouldn't do it today. No, I wouldn't do it. And, I mean, and you then, shouldn't. You're <laughs> and then, of course, as a kid, you know, a guy, you, you're always looking at the girls and seeing how can I get. So here's what I did. I became a candy striper. What? Yeah, yeah we were visiting somebody in the hospital, and I saw this cute little girl in this pink and white striped uniform running around with a magazine cart as a candy striper. And I said, do they have any uh, guy candy stripers? She says, oh, yes, they do. And so, man, I'm down at Presbyterian Hospital, and I signed up to be a candy striper. I thought, what a great way to get next to the, uh, to the girls. Well, guess what? They put me in the pathology lab. My job was to dump bottles of formaldehyde and body parts through a strainer and then carry them to an incinerator. (laughs) Mm, Boy, you smell like formaldehyde. The girls don't want to even get within a mile of you. (laughs) That didn't work. That That didn't work. But I always always did odd jobs. Um, I was in uh, fine arts and architecture in school and I had motorcycles and moved to uh, California for a while and tended barn, waited tables, and and uh, uh, took a 48 Har- Harley Model K uh, from New Mexico all over to California, then up the coast to Oregon, uh, drive it 100 miles, stop and fix it. It was, <laughs> it was really not much of a bike. But like uh, every like you had to keep stopping to fix it. Oh yeah, always for every, that long distance. I, I think I broke fifteen throttle uh, wires. It just it was just amazing. That was nineteen sixty four. How old were you? Uh, Twenty one. 
Were you? Would you say that you were trying to find yourself, like doing all these odd jobs, or you were just having fun? Oh no, I thought that I had found myself. I was just looking for others who were finding themselves. <laughs> you know, I thought I thought I was going to be Jack Kerouac or somebody. You know, is that is that a reference I'm supposed to know? <laughs> <laughs> so. Then, uh, let's see, other jobs, uh, shoveling coal. And, oh, oh, I worked at Nevada Test Site as a radionuclide gamma spectrometry analyst. That's a meter reader. <laughs> <laughs> I was in radiation safety. That was a hoot. We worked on uh, nuclear underground detonations, and it was very scary, and it was, uh, we had a lot of exposure to radiation, and uh, we were, it was Wild West in this, that was 1965, 6, and uh, we'd wear dos. How did you pick up this job? You just. Well, I went to a, a job fair and said, how many of you would like to work in radiation? I raised my hand. They said, okay, come with us. And I thought, well, you know, that ought to be good. So then they shipped us off to uh, Jackass Flats, which is 46 miles out of Las Vegas, which is now part of the Las Vegas city limits, but. Yeah, it was living in Vegas in the 60s. That was wild. We'd throw our check away every week at the uh, on the tables. You oh, know? so you weren't even set? Because I'm sure you got paid a lot of money to no. risk your life. No, we got paid less than the dishwashers because we were uh, contracted by um, uh, the AEC, that's the old Atomic Energy Commission, out of Santa Fe, New Mexico, so they could pay Santa Fe, New Mexico... Um, uh, hourly wage to have radiation safety support because the people on the test site worked for Reynolds Electric or Reynolds Aluminum, one of those Reynolds Electric, and they were paying, you know, they were getting 12, 15 bucks an hour, and we were getting like 485 or something. So. But to test nuclear weapons, basically. To be the safety support, you okay. know, um, to be the one that would read the radiation. Lots of funny, crazy stories with that. Uh, it was, um, it was really well worth doing because of the experience I had. The last site was out of the Tonopah test range in a place called Warm Springs, and the shot was called Faultless. You can look it up in Google. And Faultless was a multi-megaton megaton device that they buried, you know, need to know. I don't know how big it was, need to know how deep, I have no idea. But you bury it real deep, and then you set it off. And we were 90 miles away when they set it off, and I watched telephone poles weave toward me as it shook the helipad I was on 90 miles from ground zero. And the snow was cracking, and the trucks were, oh, it was and you'll know, hear nothing and then we flew in on a helicopter where I was the guy with a a, a probe uh, <laughs> hanging out the bottom of a helicopter it was on a rod and I'm reading reading these uh, 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 the feedback to the health physicists that were on the helicopter with us and what they look for is when they set off this device it causes a huge crate a, a huge uh, um, cavity and then that cr cavity cracks up in chimneys and then you get a crater so it's it's like a volcanic crater this one didn't do that and so they were scared to death that it was going to vent and that, and if it vents then you got you know you got <laughs> plutonium floating through the air it's really bad stuff and they finally identified after hours of flying around till we're almost out of gas 
that it took a piece of dirt a mile in diameter and picked it up one to four feet, turned it one to two feet, and settled it three to eight feet. It took a pancake of dirt. Can you imagine? That's how big that device. You don't call it a bomb. It's a device. I can't believe we're just detonating. We're we're messing up the earth. Oh man. <laughs> yeah. No, yeah. Why? Just. I mean, that 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 was a huge device, and it was really a neat piece of land because there were all sorts of. Uh, Paiute Indian um, um, would pick up arrowheads and pot shards and all that stuff all around these old Paiute Indian encampments and there were all sorts of old gold mines and silver mines it was really fun it was a good time so what would you say you learned from just working these number of and I hate to use the word odd because it's not an odd job but it is odd yeah I what I learned is that uh, there's nothing you can't do and that if you uh, say no all the time, you'll just not have very much of, a, of an involved, exciting life. But if you say yes, there's all sorts of fun things that happen to you out there. So you work this job as a nuclear specialist, a nuclear... Radio nucleotide gamma spectrometry analyst. I'll let you say meter, that. <laughs> meter reader. And then what's next? Like, how did you become you, the, the writer, the author, the... Your motivational speaker, the real estate. Well, I flunked English a lot. Um, I even had to take uh, remedial English in college, then, which I made it through fine because I wrote a poem for the teacher and she loved it. But like a love poem, or just like no, a, just uh, it was a it was a, a deep it was a deep that was back in the you know that was in 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 sixty two three so it was in the beat generation so yeah it was a. Uh, so I wrote that. She loved it. So she gave me a, a nice passing grade. I didn't have to do anything else. Uh, but <laughs> I didn't, I did, well, I didn't think I was, I did not think I was a good student. Um, I, never, I graduated in that 10% of the class that caused everybody else to be in the top 90. <laughs> um, I graduated from high school like that, and my, my father uh, was disgusted with this. He was a straight-A student all his life, and it would just drive him nuts that I didn't get good grades. And so he would tell me that I would never amount to anything. And for a long time, I believed him. You know, you, you hear it often enough, but it you know, wasn't his fault. And, and so then uh, it just, I would just, if there was a job, I'd jump into it. I would jump into it, manage a ski shop. Uh, that was fun. Wash dishes. Um, uh, was a janitor at a department store in California. I got up, got there at four in the morning with the big machines, polishing the floor and washing the windows, and worked at a toy department. So yeah, just I, I guess and you always did your best. Yeah, yeah, because I found if you did your job the best you could do, then everybody else around you seemed kind of happy. And they liked you. They don't like you because you're a good guy. They like you because they paid you and you did a good job. And then when I got into real estate, I, I was working for Olivetti Corporation. Do you know Olivetti? I don't. They made Olivetti typewriters, Olivetti Underwood. I sold more typewriters than anybody in the United States in one year. What year was it? How old were you uh, at this point? Let's see. That was 1960. Um, that was 1970, 69, 70. 
6970. I was married the first time, and I was uh, a typewriter specialist, and I, I sold typing labs to high schools. You know, now they have key, uh, I guess keypad or a keyboard or whatever it is, but I actually sold typewriters, and that's when you the typewriter be. was IBM Selectric. Remember the dancing ball? You've probably seen yeah. one of those. No, everybody had to have those. So I outsold, I oversold IBM Selectric, which was a stellar typewriter. It was a great one. Mine you, wasn't. You should have given the guy from Pursuit of Happiness, I can't remember his name, but you should have given him some tips. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, what is his name? Yeah, he's a he's a great. I like him. Oh, you've met him? I like no, no. Wow. I like I read about. I read okay. him. So I was like, okay. that's great. But so selling, and they didn't pay me any money. I was selling a lot. No, they paid me, you know, nothing. A car allowances. I wasn't making any real money. And uh, I was playing pool with a with a guy I met, and he was a real estate salesman. And he said, "You ought to go into real estate." So I did in 1971. And I listed 10 houses my first two weeks. And you were how old? I just like getting the age down. Uh, 71. Okay. So 73, I would have been 30. So 71, I was 28. And I sold 10 houses. I listed 10 houses my first two weeks and had 86 sales closed my first 12 months. I was a phenom. But I found out what, and I still teach it to this day, you don't sell people. Uh, you sell three things. First, you sell yourself. Then you sell your uh, your uh, company. And then last, you sell your product or service. And if you're not sold on you, a lot of salespeople, they don't make it in this world because they're not sold on the one product you got to sell. And that's you. And if they don't buy you, they ain't going to buy from you. And then I found that in real estate, it's just helping people with that humongous decision with the massive amount of paperwork and it is a thousand it's a million times more than it was in 1971 but helping people through that process and being there for them and having patience and listening to them you know if you go to my rossyspeaks.com slash listen there's a video on how to be the best listener it's really good stuff i suggest everybody do it but yeah it's um you listen and you help, and when you do that, people love you for it, and they and they stick with you and they're loyal. So, um, the road, tired of the road, we're back. Bobby and my my uh, uh, the woman I've had a burning affair with now for 40 years. Uh, my partner, we do everything together. We're both brokers, and we're selling real estate again because I don't have to get on an airplane, and it's really nice. You know, we help people, and we just—it's basically referrals. But it's—it's—it's it's, uh, it's a great world. It's so interesting because I, um, you know, I'm 28, and I have know so many people that are freaking out. They—they they don't have it all together yet. They're still trying to figure it out. Or I remember graduating at 22, and people like, "Oh, I don't have a job yet. I don't know what I really want to do." And for you to have at 30 to have started real estate you said 30 is when you started 28 is when you were selling printers and um uh, typewriters i apologize yeah. and for you to have amassed so much success were you freaking out at your about your age and if you're really really lucky mcneil at 75 you'll still be freaking out about what's going to happen next 
Really? Oh, yeah. You know, change is the only thing in life that's constant. Tomorrow is not cast in concrete. It's cast in sand. Things will be different tomorrow. It always is. It is always different. Uh, there's no such... Well, first of all, I think you and I talked about this the day you were over. There's no such thing as perfection. It doesn't exist. And the reason that people your age, and I know a lot of them, are freaking out, it's because they think there's a perfect place for them, a perfect job, a perfect position, a perfect path. Nah, it's it's constantly changing. Grab the path you're on and ride it. And, and do your best at it. Do your best. Love it. Enjoy it. Get excited about it. Excited about washing windows and... and uh, my friend's coming up and going, oh, so uh, now you're washing windows, huh? I bet that's fun. I go, hey, it is, because you know what? I'm off by 9.30 in the morning. The rest of the day is mine. Really? That, like yeah. you always spend it like that? Oh, yeah, why not? You know, why not? I said, you'll be just going to work, and I'll be at the beach, and I'll be fishing. You know, I'll be down, I'll be uh, having some beers. <laughs> And it's crazy because at 30, you worked your way to the top of the real estate market. And then next, they started saying, hey, you're so good, you should teach it. And here, here yeah, comes. Yeah, you're, you're right. I said, I'm not a teacher. I'm a salesman. And then I started teaching, uh, scared to death. And then I'd teach for free. I'd speak for free. A Kiwanis Club would call me in Artesia, New Mexico or uh, or the Lions Club wanted me to talk at a breakfast, and you'd go someplace and get a rubber egg or a piece of cold chicken. And, <laughs> the, the, and the eggs that are, like, powder at first, and they oh, pull it. Yeah. Like, yeah, and I did it for free. And then one day somebody called me, and I was in a pissing mood. I just had had it. And I said, I'd have to have 300 bucks to do that. They went, okay. And I went, ding, 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 ding. My father said, I can't believe they pay you to speak for years. I'd have paid you to shut up. <laughs> <laughs> and then you started that one speaking job getting paid. Then you started speaking all around the world. And um, Yes, I, I, I did a lot in the real estate industry, which I'm really blessed. They were great to me. Uh, there's a program called GRI. That's Graduate Realtors Institute. And I taught that, I think, in 21 states. And, and then I was... Um, I applied and was accepted to a cadre for the certified residential specialist, uh, which is there were 19 instructors for 1.7 million realtors in this higher designation. And I had great teachers and mentors in that and really taught me about speaking and, and controlling the room. And then I started applying neurolinguistics to a class so that you could mirror pace and lead a class and take them through different steps and walk them into the past and then take them into the forward, May, mainly keeping their attention. And I got really high marks at that. And other people hired me that I had great clients in Alaska. I went to Alaska. Bobby and I spent, I spent 70 days up there one year. She came up and spent 30 with me in December in Alaska. But, you know, and I, and the places I've got, I've been, I've spoke on cruise ships and Singapore. God, that was just fabulous. And and then um, we went to uh, Prague, where I spoke for um, um, ERA Europe, and we had um, 400 people from all countries in Europe, 
had six sets of translators at the back of really? the room. Really? And they were, they'd work in pairs. And uh, that was really fun. And, and I went back and met all the translators. And they all said, what is your outline? We need your outline. They promised me your outline. And I said, yeah, I sent it to her. You should have it. And so I'd go to the lady who was in charge. I'd say, they really need the outline. Then I'd go talk to the next speakers. And, yes, we are looking for your outline. I'm going, oh, I, you know. So everybody wanted the outline. And I'm talking to the lady in charge. And she says, listen, I've been doing this a long time. You never give interpreters the outline because they'll read it. They won't interpret you. They'll just read your outline. And I went, oh, ding, 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 another lesson. But we brought the house down. We had a great time. The people from Romania were nuts. Prague, oh, my gosh. If you haven't been to Prague, go. It's the jewel of Europe. It is. We were going to travel all around out of Prague. You know, we stayed there for a week, and we were going to go to Italy and all that. No, Prague. It's just, it's just right there. There's everything you need, a, a 600-year-old bridge. Prague Castle. Charlemagne rode a horse into Prague Castle. I mean, you st- I get chills thinking about it. It was fabulous. Did the guy that used to catch snakes as a kid, like, <laughs> did you ever imagine that? Yeah, probably. Really? Well, you know, fairy tales. <laughs> you always imagine your. At least I would put myself into the story of the fairy tale. and That you'd uh, be doing that? Maybe I was with Charlemagne. I don't know. You no, know, I'm talking about like just giving that speech in front of all those people. Oh, probably not. Probably not. And and I don't. Uh, I I really don't even like PowerPoint. I use it as a guide. <laughs> you know, I don't really um, teach from it. I, and I like to wander in the crowd. I like to be in within the the people and. And teach because I because that's how you pace it. But anyway, it's you're an energy guy. So like your whole energy throughout your life is I'm just going to work hard, be friendly to everybody, and see what happens. Yeah, and it caused a lot of problems. Really, what oh, type? Sure. Um, if you if you do that, you smile at somebody, they smile back. You feel a kindred spirit, and and I I. I used to be, I probably still am, a little too trusting. Uh, I had to learn things like um, uh, givers. I've always been a giver. I never will stop. But I had to learn that givers have to set limits because takers never will. Really? Takers will. There are takers. They'll just suck the blood out of you until there's nothing but a bag of skin on the floor, and then they'll walk away and <laughs> go, boy, you were good. And um uh, so I, that was hard on me because I, I, you know, you want to choose to believe everybody's good. At least I do, and um, and think positive and think optimistic. Even though I found out I'm more pessimistic than I thought. But have you? There's a book called Learned Optimism by Dr. Martin Seligman. Have read the it. head of uh, the psychology department at Penn State, and this book was written probably in the late '80s. In fact, I know it was. And he has a test in there to tell whether you are uh, optimistic or pessimistic. And he says people are born optimistic or pessimistic, and nobody knows how or why. You just are. And if you're born optimistic, you do better in life. Uh, And if you are born pessimistic, the good news is you can change. 
<laughs> you know, you, you can change. And so um, I thought I was extremely um, optimistic. Uh, you might well, you might even say that as well. I don't know. But I took the test, and guess how I scored? Mildly pessimistic. And I went, oh, come on. I took the test three more times trying to skew it so I can <laughs> prove he was wrong. The next page, you're not going to believe this, McNeil. It says, if you are um, scored mildly pessimistic, uh, you will probably take the test multiple times to prove I'm wrong. <laughs> through the book (laughs) and then I said no no I'm not pessimistic I'm a realist okay you got to be real next page all pessimists justify their pessimism with reality he's just whoa nailed me nailed me then I'm probably mildly pessimistic if not uh, go online and take the test you can go to uh, learned optimism uh, test uh, Martin Seligman. Yeah, you can take it online. We've gotten to know who you are. So do you have like a mistake that you've made or that you've learned from? I mean, I'm sure you've made mistakes. you have anything that you really learned You know, from? I had one that was a, that was a real hu- monumental. It was epistemological. I was referred a client from somebody who was in the real estate industry. They didn't sell, but they were in the real estate industry. And at the time, I was managing an office. I had 20 resale real estate agents and 10 commercial agents. Oh, you were the boss. Well, I was the manager, yeah, the broker. But, you know, when someone gives you a referral, and this guy had bought 12 homes, and he was buying at the high end of the market. And so, you know, I'm personally going to take him. I know he came in at 8 in the morning. I knew I had him till 11 o'clock. And then at 11 o'clock, he and his wife were leaving to go have lunch with his new boss because he was moving from out of state to Albuquerque. And I didn't, it just didn't click. I'm doing my best. I'm showing him property. It's just not clicking. And so at 11 o'clock, we're, we're going back in the office. I was a little down because, you know, I thought I'd get him. It just communication, it was almost like a personality conflict or something. And I said, uh, Ron, um, of all the houses we looked at, uh, the one on Euclid best fits your needs. Would you be interested in making an offer? And he goes, no. As a matter of fact, uh, Rossi, I, I don't think we can buy a house from you. Wow. Now, there's a lot of people who didn't buy from me. You don't sell everybody, but no one had ever told me they couldn't. You know, I was very upfront. And so, being inquisitive, I said, you know, you, you must have a reason for saying that. Can I ask what it is? And he says, yes. When uh, we were leaving the office this morning, an elder lady was coming in, and she had a, a stack of papers in her arm, and she was very frustrated and and you opened the door for her, and she went by us, and you said to us, that poor thing is never going to make it in real estate. Well, I thought that, and I was her manager, and I knew that. I didn't even realize I had said it out loud, you know. And then um, he said, um, a little bit later, um, we passed a house, and my wife pointed at the sign, and and you said, um, no, I don't show that guy's houses. He's a real jerk. Whoa. Now, he was a jerk. 
I had my mother's house listed, and he told my mother that she should list with him because dealing with relatives was too difficult. He was a jerk. But I can't believe I said that out loud. Now, I, I, I come from an Italian Catholic family. We talk a lot about people. <laughs> it's kind of a thing we do around oh, the dinner table. Oh, we do too. You do too? Yeah, we, yeah, if you walk out the house looking ridiculous and my family happens to see you, we're going to roast you. <laughs> oh, my. Well, good. We can hang out. Exactly. If you had dinner at our house, we wanted to talk about you. We'd send you in the kitchen for cheese. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, and this guy tells me that, and he says, I figured if you talk about others that way, you will talk about us. But thank you for your time. Ding, 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 ding. This ding. is a major client. Major client buying at the high end of the market. And referral from a good friend. I had to call her right away and tell her I screwed it up. And, but the guy, you know, not many people will really be honest with you. He was honest, and it made a huge difference. You talk about people, you don't even think you're doing it, but it shows others a breach in trust. As Maya Angelou says, I love her, she says, uh, when people tell you who they are, believe them the first time. Well, I was telling this guy that I'm just a Gabby Gus. I'm going to talk about everybody. Is Gabby Gus a, a term that the older people used to use back in the day? <laughs> I don't know. I thought I just made it up. <laughs> oh, okay. If you want to call it that. Chatty yeah. Patty is something I'll use. Yeah, Chatty Kathy, Chatty Patty, yeah. Well, Gabby Gus, I was trying to be gender specific. Okay, okay. Yeah, it was a very, a very big lesson. I also learned... This is funny, that you always have a written introduction when you go someplace to speak, and you hand it to them, and it's short and it's sweet, and you tell them to read it verbatim, because when they make it up, it sometimes is not good. I'm in North Dakota. We're in the basement of the Hilton Hotel, and there's pillars everywhere. It's a hard room to work, because you're always having to dodge pillars. The, the the heater in the hotel is weak. So people are there in their coats. You can almost see your breath. And they're all grumpy. You know, I guess in North Dakota at 8 in the morning, you might be grumpy on a, in a December morning. <laughs> they're all grumpy. And the, the guy who's the president of the board got his coat on. And he stands up there and he says, Well, I'm not going to bore you with a bunch of dribble. I'll just introduce <laughs> you to the fellow what will. And he pointed at me and sat down. <laughs> <laughs> that guy over there is about to speak. <laughs> yeah, that's about it. And there have been worse ones. You always give them an intro, and you uh, you got to carry it. If you're the speaker, you got to carry it. Have you always taken responsibility when you mess up, or is that something you had to learn? I found, and I don't even know. That's a great question because I don't know where I learned it. But I learned the, the quicker you raise your hand and say, foul, shoot, too, you know, I did it, it's me, the faster it disappears. Because if you don't, uh, then it lingers. It's sort of like a, a, a body odor or something, <laughs> you know. It's just going to hang there until somebody deals with it. And so, yeah, I, I, uh, I'll admit what I'm wrong quickly, quickly, especially when I do stupid people tricks. Oh, man, I'm at... I'm, I'm, there was a great bar at O'Hare International, 
where this guy, uh, the bartender, would have cassette tapes of old jazz and old blues, and he could name all the drummers and the guitar players and the singers and the backup singers, and when it was recorded, he was outstanding. I would sit there and, and sip on a cocktail and listen to his music. I forgot to change my watch for the time zone, so I thought I had a good hour before my plane would be at the gate. And so I finally said goodbye, gave him a tip, meandered down to the gate, and the gate was empty. And the door to the jetway was open, and I walked out that door to the jetway because it was the last plane into Raleigh. And the plane is backing away from the gate, and the pilot just shakes his head, and I'm going, oh, man, <laughs> man. And there's no more planes. You can't open the door? No, no. This was before all the security, right? Yeah, no. If 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 the plane is pulled away from the jet bridge, no, it's a wrap. Now, fifteen minutes before the plane leaves, they shut the door and you don't get in. But anyway, I went to the Admirals Club, in which I was a member at the time, and I said, um, "Have you seen David Letterman?" She goes, "Is David Letterman here?" I said, "Yeah, he wants to interview me for stupid people tricks." She says, "What did you do?" <laughs> so I told her the story, and American Airlines uh, put me up in the Hilton Hotel for the night, and I had the next flight out. Admit your mistakes. What's the worst that'll happen? Probably something good. Uh, are there any more mistakes that you think were monumental? If not, we can get to the next section. Um, well, I'm sure there are, but uh, I think we can press on. Okay. So this next part is what I like to call unsolicited advice. And what I do is I'll scour the internet for questions, just life philosophy questions from people, and I like to get your take on it. One question from the internet, what's one lesson I can learn in the next 30 minutes that would change my life? Take the word try out of your vocabulary. Remove it from your vocabulary. Never use the word try again. Um, and here's the lesson. Everybody listening today, and, and you also, McNeil, raise your hand over your head. Okay, raise your hand. Now put it down. Okay, now try to raise your hand over your head. No, see, don't do it. Try actually tells the subconscious mind you don't have to do it. For instance, if I said, hey, McNeil, why don't you stop by tomorrow and uh, uh, we'll have some uh, lunch. And you say, yeah, I'll try. Will you be there? Probably not. If no. anything, no. Nah. Anybody says try, no, they won't be there. So we play the game at our house. And when, when my wife and I learned this, it was we were in a seminar with Stephen Covey, um, fantastic man, and, and he taught us about try. So we came home and we said, okay, girls, we, you cannot use the word try. If anybody says that word T-R-I from now on, you're going to get game show buzzed out. <laughs> And if I use the word, you can say it to me. Of course, they both rolled their eyes. And the first time someone said it, we went, eh, and they laughed. And the third time, they went, eh, and they laughed. And the fourth time, they ran to their room crying and slammed the door. So <laughs> you use that word habitually, and it gives your brain the excuse not to do it. Did you read any good books lately? Oh, I'm trying. Did you go to church last week? Oh, I tried. Did, did you uh, you give to the Salvation Army? And I tried to give as much, you know. It's an excuse. And there's 
the next lesson. Do you want it? I'll go ahead. We're watching. I'm watching. My wife's not so into it. Uh, so you think you could dance. I love the athleticism. These dancers are just, they're killer. And, man, this gal, I thought she was outstanding. And they said, I'm sorry, you just don't have enough. Come back again next year. She didn't get the ticket to go to Los Angeles. So um, she's walking off stage, and the announcer goes, Becky, what do you think happened? What do you think went wrong? What went wrong with your performance? Why didn't you get to go? And she says, anything I say will be an excuse. I did my 100%. Excuses are tools of the helpless. I refuse to use them. And she walked off, and I went, whoa. I'll give her credit twice. After that, it's my original material. (laughs) Excuses are tools of the helpless. Just refuse to use them. We hate excuses, yet habitually, like T-R-Y, we do it. So don't do it. It's weird to me that you are so laid back and so happy and so easygoing, but you also are like you, you don't use the word try, no excuses. How do those how do those two things match? How did you make them match? Congruent. How do you keep them congruent? Well, there are times you don't. There are times that, that you uh, you fail. There's no perfection. So when you do, you just admit, Foul, shoot to and press on. Uh, you can't wallow in it. Um, I messed up on an appointment this week with somebody. I was supposed to verify it in two hours, and I just forgot. So I could have made an excuse, but instead of, at 11 o'clock that night, I sent a text to that person because the appointment was the next day. Said, foul, shoot too. I made a mistake. I erred. I forgot to send this to you. We're on for tomorrow. I hope you can still make it. And he's, oh, sure. When you foul, just press on, because I do it a lot. My wife's sitting here nodding her head right now. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, uh, next question for you. The world would be a better place if? Uh, We accepted everyone. Okay, I like that. Yeah. You know, just when I taught in the Netherlands, I learned much from the Dutch, pardon the pun, but I think they're the most non-judgmental body of people I've ever met. You know, the, as long as you are authentic, you are who you are, they're fine. Uh, if you're pretentious or try to be somebody else or acting differently or acting childishly or whatever, um, they just accept you for who you are. They don't care. It's really nice. Ex- acceptance of everyone. It's, it's, it's hard to do. It's hard to do. Um, when, the, when the guy sitting next to you on the airplane every five minutes, every five seconds is going, <laughs> <laughs> he had a cold. And I finally got up and got tissues and brought it back to him. It was like a 19-year-old kid. You had to teach him how to blow his nose. But it was pretty hard to accept him. But after he blew his nose, he was all right for a while, and then I had to get up and get him more, but that's another story. <laughs> it's hard to accept everybody, and it's hard for everybody to be accepted. But, but we all have – I, I kind of think that everybody has this belief that who they are is okay. At least that's what their parents told them, and, and you know, this is the way I am. Uh, this is the way I am, and that's the way I am. Uh, okay, 
So be that way, but don't judge others that aren't that way. And then, oh, that's another whole thing. Uh, I, uh, it's, my church taught me not to judge others. You know, don't don't judge others, least you be judged. Yourself. I taught my kids to judge. I told them to judge others, not the people, but their actions at any given time. That's what you judge: how they act, how they react, what they do. If they're acting offensive towards you, it's okay to say they're not a good person, and you could walk away. It's okay to judge that. And then I recently, Erin, uh, well, quite often we'll listen to Dr. Laura on the radio, and that's going to make a lot of your readers go, ah. But Dr. I love her. She says everybody judges. Get over it. Everybody does all the time. That's kind of how you keep yourself safe, keep your environment. It says go here, don't go there. What's the best piece of advice you've ever seen? Uh, my mentor, Michael Vance. I was at a low point in my life in the uh, early 70s, uh, gone through some money problems and other things, and was being uh, self-effacing, beating up on myself a lot. I was really negative, and, and I was low on bucks, and he was speaking in California, and I, I got another credit card and got in my car and slept in my car and drove to Los Angeles, to San Francisco, actually, to hear him speak, and went to the back door because it was a big convention, said I'm with the band, and they let me in, and I walked in, and he said, hey, Rossi, how are you? And it makes you feel good when people recognize you. And he says, what's going on? And I went, he goes, yeah, and then what? He goes, yeah, and then what? I went, he goes, oh, okay. He got his assistant to get a envelope and a piece of paper, and he wrote on it, and he put it in the envelope and sealed it. And he put it in my jacket pocket, and he says, when you get back to Albuquerque, open this up. It'll help you. I went, wow. So I listened to him speak, and he's phenomenal. He's just phenomenal. And and drove back to Albuquerque, and I kept feeling that envelope. And when I came over the hill on Route 66 into Albuquerque, and the city lays out below you, and the, the Rio Grande Valley, and the Sandia Mountains, and I pulled over the side and I grabbed that envelope and tore it open and it said John Deere yeah like the tractor it said John Deere it took me like almost a month to reach him by phone yeah Rossi what's up I said well it's about your note he said yeah what'd you think and I said I don't get it he says buy a tractor and pull your head out of your ass <laughs> I was stunned. He was right. I was getting a real poopy outlook on life. It was me. It wasn't anybody else. It wasn't the rest of the world. It was me. And he nailed it. And I did. You seem to pick up on life lessons very quickly. How did you develop that skill? You never know anything until you teach it. So teaching taught you to listen more? Absolutely. Simple answer. What motivates you on a daily basis? Oh, the woman that I love. Um, That's sweet. She's there for me. She's always there. We we love each other. We care for each other. We still say please and thank you. We still write each other love notes. Um, we still hold hands. 
Yeah, does does the love note get you out of stuff like it did for your English class? Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, no. And we, you know, we have a belief. We had been together about three years, and she went to lunch with her mom and sister and was talking about what a great life we were creating. And her mother and sister said simultaneously, the honeymoon will be over soon. No, you always hear that. And she came home, and she was almost to tears. Now, she didn't cry, so she's probably going, well, you don't need to tell them that. She was almost to tears. I said, what's wrong? And she says, well, they said the honeymoon will be over soon. And I calligraphied, the honeymoon is never over, framed it, put it on the wall, and we've lived by it ever since. The honeymoon is never over. So what gets me going every day? Hey, it's a honeymoon. Oh, <laughs> okay, there you go. I like that. What's the hardest truth that you've had to accept that made you stronger? If you don't love yourself, no one else will. Oh, your mama will love you. <laughs> She'll love you. But if you don't love yourself, other people know it. If you don't love yourself and someone tells you that they love you, you'll go, oh, yeah. yeah if you only knew the real me, you wouldn't. If you don't love yourself, you can't love somebody else because you can only love them as much as you love yourself, which is not very much. And it was an extremely tough lesson to learn. I, I uh, say that um, I've um, been married twice before and once forever after. I didn't love myself the first two times, um, so I couldn't let them love me and I couldn't love them. And now, I love myself. I love myself. It's a choice. Um, I was, uh, a friend of mine took me to lunch, and he says, your problem is you don't love yourself. I'm going, oh, that's just what I need to hear. Someone else telling me my problems. And then the next Saturday, I have my daughter in the grocery cart. She's like four. And, and I'd push her and let her loose, and she'd squeal, and then I'd grab her and pull her back. You know, you push her, let her go. 40, 50 feet, and then you grab it back. <laughs> and she squealed at the top of her little four-year-old voice, I love you, Daddy. And I went, shh. What? If you don't love yourself and others say they do, you negate it. Oh, come on. You know, I don't make a big deal out of it. it. Bothered me. Let it bother me for quite a while. And then it was two years later. I'm still struggling with this. My daughter is six. I'm fixing fence in the backyard. She's on the other side of the fence playing with her girlfriends. And she sees me over the fence and she says, I love you, Daddy. And I sat down behind the fence and cried. You know, if she can love you, why can't you love you? You know, what is it? What is it that you just don't like so much that you cannot be open and love? I thought about it all night long. The next morning I got up, shaved, showered, and I looked in the mirror and I said, mirror, mirror, before you start out, take one last look and eat your heart out. Because <laughs> of an adage I believe very strongly in, it's an amtibile, and that is that it's easier to act your way into a new way of thinking than to think your way into a new way of acting. So I began to act like I love myself, and pretty soon I 
love myself. Act your way into it. Hard lesson to learn. Hard lesson to learn. I mean, I was probably 34 or 5 by then. You were accomplishing all these things by then. Yeah. It wasn't fulfilling or... You have a lot of frayed knots when you don't love yourself. There's okay. a lot of things hanging out there that you have a tendency to lie, you know, because uh, I say, boy, you're, you're really great at this job. You go, oh, yeah, but you don't believe it. You know, uh, yeah, no. And people say, oh, you're just doing so well. And you go, yeah. And inside you're going, yeah, if you only knew. So this last part, which I told you was a surprise, I do it to everyone. So it just so happens that you're going to be good at it. <laughs> I, my, the last part I do is I ask people to give a motivational speech. Uh, I, put, I put on some motivational music. And I, I tell them to act like they're talking to a bunch of middle schoolers or whoever you would give a motivational speech to, maybe your younger self. And I'll put about a minute and a minute and a half on the clock. I play my motivational music. And it's always interesting to hear like quiet people give this speech, but you're the professional, so maybe they'll have to take notes after this. So uh, give me the thumbs up, I'll play the music and you start. Empathy. Empathy. You ever think about that word? It's pretty interesting. Uh, I know a lot of people, probably many of you out there listening, who believe you are too empathetic. Maybe others have told you you're too empathetic, uh, which could mean a lot. It usually means that you give too much or you don't think of yourself well enough. But Empathy. Empathy is a really good thing to have. Some people have no empathy, zero on the scale. Uh, Idi Amin, if you don't like your subjects, eat them. Or 100% empathy, Mother Teresa. And it's, it's one side of a triangle. Empathy to feel see and hear as other people feel, see and hear. It's real important to feel as others feel, to see as others feel, see, to hear as others hear. You can have zero empathy or you can have a hundred percent empathy. Now here's what happens when people say you have too much empathy. You fall over the top of that triangle down the other side. And that side is called sympathy. Empathy to feel, see, and hear as other people feel, see, and hear. Sympathy to feel, see, and hear for others. Taking away their right to feel, see, and hear for themselves. Sympathy. Another word is pity. Now. There's a bridge between the two called compassion. And we all have compassion. And you know when you need to show compassion. And someone loses a child and, oh, I can't imagine how, how, how horrible. I have compassion for them. I don't know how they feel. You couldn't imagine, but you have compassion. But someone who is strongly empathetic makes a great Preacher, teacher, mom, dad, 
boss, salesman. A good salesman can feel, see, and hear as others feel, see, and hear. Empathy, guys. Empathy. I yeah. like it. So what do you have going on? Like, Tell me about uh, your stuff. This oh, what I'm go- what I got going on right now? I I do a lot of coaxing. I, I'm not a coach. A coach says, "This is the game. Now let me show you how to play it." I don't coach people. I'm not a um, a mentor. A mentor says, "Here's how I play the game. Uh, play it like I do." No. Uh, so what am I? For years, I called myself an og mentor because I I really get into people and make them think about themselves and make them recognize their own errors. But what I really want to be is that person who can help others become the best that they can be. And it's not like I would do it. It's not like you would do it. It's like they would do it. You know, if we truly are individuals, and we are, we have these, this water analog center sequential computer called the brain that operates at 8,100 bits per nanosecond with the 900 billion neurons in your body, visually, auditorily, kinesthetically, gustatorily, and olfactory on a conscious, subconscious, and unconscious level. We are all genius unrecognized by self. I got quoted in the San Francisco Examiner saying that, but we are. You are, you are a, we are all so different and so different in our intelligences. So I can't coach or mentor. Augment was pretty scary because it was really down and dirty. So why not coax people? Okay. So I'm a personal coax. Okay, I like that. I um, help others identify what they want, not what I want. I help others uh, do so by establishing their personal values because your values will help you enact your um, activities to achieve your goals. So you got to know your values before you set your goals because if your goals are not congruent with your values, you'll never do it. For instance, if I said, okay, McNeil, uh, we're going to split uh, $5 trillion, okay, you and I. I'm down. Let's okay. do it. Now, here's how we do it. We have to dig on our hands and knees in a tunnel for three years, and the tunnel is just big enough for us to get through, and we'll have a light on our head, and we'll carry out buckets of dirt for three years. We have to do it. I'm still with still you. Still with me? Good. We're going into Fort Knox. We're going to rob something? We're going to rob Fort Knox. <sighs> I can't. It's ah. because my grandma will be upset. <laughs> it's against your values, right? Yeah. If a goal is against your values, you will not do the work it takes to achieve it. So I help people identify their goals, not their values, not mine. Then I help people define their goals. And I do that using a five-sensing technique that is phenomenal. And once they do that, and it's very tough work, and once they do that, then I coax them into the direction of creating their plan. And then coax them into keeping on target until it becomes habitual. Because everything we do in life is habitual. Okay. Tell them about your book. Pitch your book to them. Uh, dog eat dog and vice versa. You can go to rossispeaks.com, R-O-S-S-I-S-P-E-A-K-S.com. 
You can buy the book there for 10 bucks. Uh, I'll even personally autograph it to you. It dropped in 2006. It's my uh, compendium of life. It's everything I knew about life to that point. And it's on marketing. The title, which I love, Dog Eat Dog and Vice Versa, came from a student that I had in a North Carolina High School Honor Society seminar I was doing. And, and I was talking about marketing and how it's dog eat dog. And the kid on the front row said, and vice versa. And I fell on the floor laughing. So that's the title of my book. It's, it's a good book. It, it talks about a lot of different things and will, will help you thrive in life. And I'd love for you to buy it. But buy it, buy it on from RossySpeaks.com. My wife and granddaughter are also authors. Uh, they wrote a children's book together. It's called Let's Pretend. It was published when she was seven. It's a hardback. It's a great children's book. It's wonderful. It's beautifully illustrated by me. And so it, you talk about if you have kids, get them to write a book and then publish it. Because self-publishing is the way you go today unless you're John Grisham. <laughs> you know, you you got to do self-publishing. So do it. Wait, write your, a book. Your daughter had a book published at seven? Granddaughter. Yeah. Granddaughter. <laughs> Speaking Granddaughter of Granddaughter and wife, yeah. <laughs> your daughter told me to ask you about maple-flavored anything. Oh. <laughs> I sold donuts door to door for a company called Spudnut. When did you do this? You know, I was like twelve. <laughs> and you didn't they did it all. They have it's potato flour donuts, and they're delicious. And they would deliver them to me on Friday, on Saturday morning, like at six o'clock. And then I would put them in the basket of my bicycle, and I would go up and down the block selling a half dozen donuts at a time, a half dozen for a dollar. Can you believe that? And so for every, um, basically for every dozen donuts I sold, I got a dollar. So I thought I'm going to sell 10 dozen donuts um, every Saturday morning. It's $10 every Saturday. I'm going to buy an island in the Pacific and a yacht. You know, I'm really going to be, I was very entrepreneurial. Or as they say in Tennessee, entrepreneur. <laughs> uh, so, entrepreneur. Hey, I was so excited. And the only donuts that never sold were the maple donuts. Now, my mom would buy the remaining donuts. She would buy all the remaining donuts, which were maple-flavored. And I ate a lot of maple-flavored donuts, and to this day, uh, maple flavor kind of gives me a, the queasies. I don't want anything <laughs> maple-flavored. Okay, that's why she told me to ask you about yeah. that. Wouldn't you know she'd come up with some <laughs> sneaky thing? Anything else you want to leave the people with before we get out of here? No, McNeil, I think what you're doing is really, really great, is to have people come in and talk about their mistakes. They can laugh about them now. Uh, I think it's a very, very worthwhile thing, and I believe you should put it all together in a book because it would be uh, excellent reading material, and I want to buy the first copy. I will do it. I don't know when, but I will do it. I will work it out in my goal sheet. I'm not going to use the word try. <laughs> I, I, I will do it. Uh, and with that, I just became the author of a book. Didn't even know that was going to happen today. Uh, thank you for joining us with this week's Humor and Mistakes on 103.5 FM. We're on each week at 5 p.m. Thank you for listening. And remember, everybody makes mistakes, but it's okay. Thanks to our guest, Rossi, and uh, check out his book, Dog Eat Dog and Vice Versa. We'll be here again next week, and uh, have a great week, everyone. Oh.
that was fun.